Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Brent Gleason. Brent Gleason is a Navy SEAL combat veteran with multiple combat deployments to Iraq and Africa. Upon leaving SEAL Team 5, he turned his discipline and battlefield lessons to the world of business and has become an award-winning entrepreneur, best-selling author, and acclaimed speaker on topics ranging from resilience, mental toughness, leadership, and building high-performance teams to culture and organizational transformation. Brent is the founder and CEO of Taking Point Leadership, a progressive leadership and organizational development consulting firm with a focus on business transformation. He holds degrees in finance and economics from Southern Methodist University, certificates in English and history from Oxford University in England, and a graduate business degree from the University of San Diego. He's a best-selling author of Taking Point, Navy SEAL's 10 Fail-Safe Principles for Leading Through Change, uh, which was number one release on new release on Amazon in organizational change and business structural adjustment. And his latest book, which we talk about today, Embrace the Suck, The Navy SEAL Way to an Extraordinary Life, is number one on Amazon right now in self-help. So this is a really... Uh, really cool conversation about how we deal with suffering, how we embrace the shit that can happen in life, and how we cultivate a spirit of perseverance, uh, a spirit of resiliency in the face of challenge, in the face of controversy, in the face of everything that we've been going through lately. So this is a really um, poignant conversation. I think it's very uh, timely as well. And so we get into a number of topics. Brent shares a little bit about his uh, career as a Navy SEAL, um, a little bit about some of his experiences. We then dive into what does it actually mean to embrace the suck and why is it important? And we have um, a really interesting conversation about suffering, about how we face those things, about how we actually develop a spirit of perseverance, how we develop resiliency through uh, all of this, and how empathy actually plays a really crucial role in all of this. So before I bring Brent on, just a quick reminder, uh, hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. We are on Audible, Amazon, Google, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, so don't forget to subscribe to the episode. Uh, to the to the podcast. And don't forget to share this episode, Men It Forward. If you enjoy this conversation, send it to a few people that you know will enjoy this conversation. Uh, I think sometimes, uh, you know, we just need to find the right access point for people to be able to hear some of these messages. And Brent has a, a really interesting and uh, potent perspective, in my opinion. Without any further delay, please welcome Brent Gleason. I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, it's an honor to have you. All right. Well, I have I have a lot of questions for you today. I love the concept of what we're going to dig into. I think it's going to resonate with the listeners. Uh, but as always, I have to start with a question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Sure. The the defining moment per se that comes to mind isn't necessarily one specific incident or, or one thing that that happened or a choice that I made. It really goes back to um, my uh, you know, decision to transition from the world of corporate America uh, to actually follow one of my my college friends on his journey to become a SEAL. Uh, as a quick backstory to help support that, I, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, 
did my undergrad at Southern Methodist University, uh, degrees in finance and economics. And upon graduation, I actually took a job as a financial analyst with a global firm based in downtown Dallas. Uh, now, during that time, I had a, a close friend who actually had a, you know, a childhood vision and dream of one day graduating, joining the Navy, and at least attempting to be accepted into the notorious you know, SEAL training pipeline. Now, keep in mind, this was just pre-9-11, so it was peacetime, a little bit of a different context when we think of the world we live in today. Uh, still, obviously, honorable, a call to serve, uh, giving back to a cause greater than himself. Uh, so, obviously, I thought that was um, a phenomenal path for him, not necessarily for me. Uh, my dad had served as a Marine during Vietnam, but never you know, pushed the idea of military service on my twin brother, uh, nor I. But he and I started training together when I was uh, working in finance. He was a senior at SMU. For me, it was just a way to stay fit, have an accountability partner and help him, you know, in a way, prepare for his journey. And so by nature, we started spending a lot of time together. And uh, the dialogue we had about uh, this path he was taking piqued my interest. So I started, you know, reading about the history of the Naval Special Warfare Community, our forefathers and the underwater demolition teams in World War II, how we essentially cut our teeth as a, an elite assault force in Vietnam and then, you know, the missions and conflicts beyond there to present day. And I became fascinated with uh, the mindset, the, the grit, the concepts of resilience and mental fortitude, uh, the, the culture and behavioral expectations of a high-performing team or organization. And uh, that growing fascination coupled with the somewhat boring nature of my entry-level financial analyst position led me to the culmination of a, an ultimate decision to essentially, looking back now, live a life of no regret, to give to a cause greater than myself. I knew that the the, the pivot tables and spreadsheets would be there for me uh, upon return if I ever went back to that world. And that really was the moment when I did make that final decision to quit my job, uh, dive headfirst into a very risky path. I mean, it's upwards of an 85 to 90 percent sometimes failure rate. Uh, and I had no ambition of doing anything else in the military or the Navy other than this once I had made that decision. So knowing that it was very risky and also taking stock of the advice that uh, people gave me, uh, which was to not do this. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. Uh, you're probably not going to make it. So is this really the path you want to take? You're already on a, a you know, great trajectory in the world of business and finance, which is what you wanted. But there was, you know, like we all have at a, a pivotal moment in our life, a, a fire burning inside or, or a passion that is growing that we feel at some point you know, we have to follow. And the premise of my new book really is about uh, following those paths, listening to those voices, shutting out, you know, the naysayers and, and the negativity when you know this is something you have to pursue. And that really, uh, that decision is is one, of course, that set me on the path that I'm on today, maybe the person that I am today. And I know we'll get into this, but obviously there's a few really key takeaways uh, and insights that have helped me develop uh, and in my career as an entrepreneur, uh, in business, in my relationships, and being a leader for my family. There's a lot of things that really come out of uh, both the good and bad experiences of military service, especially during wartime, that can be applied to all aspects of our lives. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some there's some really interesting insight in there, and I'm I'm actually curious because I think since starting this podcast, you know, sort of like three or four years ago, I've been been going for a while. But even in the last decade, I've noticed that there's sort of like this surge of seals that are that come out of um, that come out of serving and have a, a really strong influence on our on our modern culture, and that's yeah. I find that to be really interesting. And I'm I'm just curious before we kind of go down this these pathways, I'm curious from your perspective why is that? Like why why do we see this sort of like surge of of Navy seals who 
largely have been behind the scenes for a very long time. And all of a sudden, in like the last decade, there has been, you know, the, the, them sort of stepping into the front, you know, writing these types of books and supporting people. And, and, and there's some really solid components that are coming out of it. But I'm curious from your perspective, why the sort of sudden uh, surge into mainstream culture? Sure. It's uh, in large part, it's due to the timing. We've, we've been at war for, for two decades. And if you go back to, there's some actually some interesting uh, pieces of that journey uh, that the Naval Special Warfare community has taken and evolved as far as our organization, our culture, you know, how we approach the, you know, the silent, you know, warrior mentality, as opposed to how we acquire new talent, how we recruit, how we develop and build the ranks of our community, of our wartime organization. We realized, uh, you know, in three to four years after 9-11 and moving at the speed these wars required, that there were going to have to be some significant, not just operational transitions, but mindset and cultural transitions if we wanted to grow the ranks of the SEAL teams and if we wanted to do a better job of recruiting. Uh, I mean, it arguably being one of the most challenging special operations training and pipeline selections in the world, you can't make the training easier. If anything, technically, it probably gets harder and harder and more competitive because uh, we have young men, you know, lined up out the door these days. I, I mentor young men through this, through the program uh, rather informally, but I've, I've mentored about six, six guys now. And uh, it's interesting to see how uh, our talent acquisition and, and recruiting strategies have become better because we were intentional in lifting that veil of secrecy around the community. Now, granted, of course, looking back, that, that was a very um, controversial uh, strategic move uh, as far as, you know, uh, endorsing movies like Active Valor or, or allowing books to be written and, and a little more leniency in there and telling the story. And, uh, you know, one of my you know former SEAL brothers, uh, you know, Jocko uh, Willink, uh, actually did an interesting post the other day. And it was he had, you know, he had come out just like a lot of us is in understanding there's a lot of lessons in, uh, that can be learned and applied into uh, you know, developing others or you know, building businesses or creating high performing team environments in the, in, you know, in the civilian world of, of entrepreneurship, of business, what have you. And uh, the advice he got was, you know, historically, we are quiet professionals and that holds a certain context. It doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're a totally silent professional. There are stories of, of war heroes that need to be told. Uh, of, of, you know, the guys that we've lost and, and missions that most people would never hear about, you know, had they still been cloaked in the world of secrecy. Uh, and so there's there's an important movement there. There's an important shift that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, obviously operational security is important and, and certain elements that, you know, we don't go into. But uh, there are there are many important uh, elements of what we do, and just not just in the SEALs, but in the world of special operations and in the military, that these things that not just need to be told, but also that have a really positive impact on organizational development uh, out here in the civilian world. So again, I think that shift is people have become more comfortable with it uh, over time. Sort of the, the old guard has either, either given up or they've, uh, or they've realized that there are some positive elements of being able to uh, share uh, a lot of how we approach life and work, you know, with, uh, with the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a very, I think it's a very astute, like just de definition and sort of defining of what, why that is and why that's happening. I think it's also an interesting time. The timing is also interesting because I feel like there's sort of like a, a lack of, of leadership from a cultural perspective that's been showing up in America. And there's this like surge of, you know, people like Jocko Willings and David Goggins and yourself that are stepping in and sort of providing this sort of no bullshit, uh, you know, no fluff, 
leadership and direction for people that that are sort of missing that, you know, yeah. and um, and I don't know if that's ever been part of the intention, but it seems to certainly be a, a byproduct of you know these conversations that a lot of you are having, which I think is is um, you know has a very substantial ripple effect within our communities, and so I think it's, it's re- just the reason why I asked the question because I've sort of seen this happening and just been like, man, I wonder how intentional it was for all of these men to sort of start to fill in these gaps within leadership, within our culture, you know, in a time where there seems to be a sort of a fall in some ways of the modern hero archetype and a fall of especially masculine leadership within the home, within our cultures, within our communities. I mean, it's just, there's there's a huge vacancy there and it it feels uh, like a lot of young men especially gain so much perspective and insight and even self-wisdom and knowledge from the content that you guys are putting out. So I just wanted to touch on that. I wanted to just touch on one more thing and then I want to dive head first into this idea of bracing, embracing the suck because I feel like there's <laughs> going to be so much good stuff there. Um, you talked about this fire uh, of, of becoming a, a SEAL. And, you know, I've, I've read quite a few of the stories of the men that have gone down that path. And there always seems to be such an interesting uh, sort of tie to their young adult life or a sort of like a proving to themselves that they can do that. Did you did you have something similar to that? Or was it just like that connection to your to your friend and the brotherhood and the camaraderie? Like what what else sort of pushed you into the desire to accomplish something like this, which, which very few yeah. people will go through. Sure. It's an interesting question. I always say that, you know, uh, buds and the SEAL training pipeline for the listener viewer is uh, well over a year. Uh, what you typically think of SEAL training and what you see in documentaries or in movie on the TVs uh, on TV is typically BUDS, which is an acronym, stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL. Now, the first few weeks of BUDS um, uh, that lead up to Hell Week, which is usually around the fifth week, that's what you normally think of, you know, the, <laughs> the pain, the suffering, the torture. That's where they're weeding out the majority of your class. Uh, after Hell Week, you might get a few uh, people who will filter in after recovering from injuries uh, or whatnot, or just reorganizing classes. But predominantly who you come out of Hell Week is who you're going to graduate with. And those early days are just a fascinating social experiment, uh, for lack of a better phrase, because let's say, for example, you arrive and, you know, before you become a class, like a team, it's kind of an individual exercise. Uh, because uh, you're there to make sure that you make it. <laughs> that is your, your number one goal. And then very quickly, you realize that you're not going to make it alone. You're going to make it because of the person to your left and right and focusing on them as opposed to yourself and creating small team environments like in your boat crews. And if you tried to handpick you know, the 30 or 40 or so students that are going to be standing tall at graduation on day one, if you got any of those right, you'd just be probably pure luck. It, it's it's really fascinating. And one of the things I dive into in the new book, which we'll get into in a minute, is that you know resilience and mental fortitude and that deep emotional connection or passion to achieving a specific goal in life, whether it's becoming a SEAL, getting into Harvard, you know, beating cancer, it, it really goes back to an emotional connection and a deep, deep passion uh, for the achievement of that goal. Uh, intellect, sure, fine. Physical prowess, great. You know, those are those are important things. But but when it comes to, and we've done a lot of research on this in the NSW community, so that we can identify the physical, cognitive, emotional attributes of students more likely to successfully navigate the course. Because, like I said before, we're trying to grow the ranks of the SEAL teams, not shrink them. 
And it comes down to the less measurable data points around you know, resilience and mostly a passion to serve, not just in the military, but a passion to serve as a SEAL operator. And that passion, if we think about any goal we've tried to achieve in life, every goal worth pursuing has some adversity, pain, and suffering associated with it. Otherwise, it's probably not that lofty of a goal in the first place, just saying. And so the students that are, that are successful in that endeavor, they have a deep fire, a deep passion, a deep burning desire to achieve that goal, to serve, to give to a cause greater than themselves. So there's a bit of altruism, you know, when it comes to that, that's important. Uh, and actually research shows that that can, you know, the, the idea and concept of giving back or giving to a cause greater than yourself really does drive people to achieve more uh, in various ways. And that definitely ties into the success of students making it through this course. But when you look at resilience and mental fortitude, which it's always posed a bit of a challenge for psychologists and behavioral scientists. Whereas you look at people in my class, for example, we've got, you know, my former, you know, good friend and former teammate, David Goggins. We we're in the same boat crew together. He and I have very, very different backgrounds, wildly different personalities. Uh, he grew up with, you know, with abuse, emotionally, and physically abusive household, racism, childhood obesity, learning disabilities, all these, you know, extreme obstacles from a very young age through his young adult life. Whereas I didn't have any of that. I grew up in a upper middle-class family in Dallas, Texas. I went to private school my whole life. I've never been fired from a job. I've never battled a severe illness or had to deal with, you know, physical or emotional abuse. So it, it's an interesting correlation. And the reason I bring it up is because the concept of, of passion or of a deep emotional connection to achieve a specific goal, regardless of the obstacles and adverse situations that will be inevitable in pursuing that goal, doesn't always necessarily have to do with coming from extreme adversity. Uh, it, it can be something that's intentional, uh, what I call purposeful suffering uh, in the book, but also have, having that willingness uh, to accept it, to engage in, in it and lean into it. Uh, that is what helps, you know, uh, these candidates, you know, going through this program or just any normal person navigating the inevitable adverse situations we all face in life. They're more, in, these people are typically more intentional in how they lean in. They're more intentional in how they accept failure or how they use obstacles as a path towards growth. Uh, that's a the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset is when we have a fixed mindset, we're like, well, my skills, my talents, you know, my, my path in life is what it is. There really is no point in, in engaging in a lot of effort or trying to change it. I am who I am. Whereas a growth mindset sees challenges as an opportunity. They see setbacks as not just acceptable, but critical for the path to growth and achieving, you know, wisdom, enlightenment, and success, however we choose to define it. So it, it's interesting because, um, it, like I said, it's almost kind of a social experiment in seeing uh, how different people from very different walks of life uh, you know, the SEAL community is actually very diverse. doesn't look like it in TV and the movies. Everybody kind of looks the same, but very, very diverse uh, organization when it comes to, you know, the background, the skills, the talents, you know, the cultural differences and how people come together. But it's really fascinating to see that level of diversity, just like we try to achieve in organizations in the civilian world, uh, creates uh, another layer of high performance that you really can't replicate anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, it's such interesting insight. I love the perspective of you know the the, the differentiated the differentiation between the backgrounds. You know that there's different backgrounds, and it's not sort of uh, people that are just looking for some ways to sort of like prove to themselves or overcome those odds, or you know, because I think there there can sometimes be. I mean, just in in any community, this sort of desire to compare 
um, our past, our stories, our desires to another and yeah. to say, well, I didn't have it that bad. And so, you know, that's where they got that drive from, or I didn't, you know, I didn't have to go through that. And so they've kind of, they've, they've been taught or dealt with experiences that, that have taught them resiliency. Right. And so I love the perspective because I think what you're really saying is like this cultivation of perseverance and resiliency can be very intentional and that it's, yeah. that it's not dependent on your background. It's not dependent on your sort of chronological history or your parents or anything like that, but that you can choose to put yourself in situations where you are intentionally going to, you know, eat shit a little bit yeah. <laughs> and, and cultivate some, <laughs> and cultivate some resiliency, you know, and like, Absolutely. like you're gonna, we, we had that, we ha I have a, a, a big organization called the, the Alliance. And it's just a ton of men from around the world. Yeah. And on one of the calls the other day, the guy was, was talking about that. And he's like, man, I feel like I've been just eating, like life's just been forcing me to eat shit lately. And he's like, but I kind of reached this place where I'm like, actually, this isn't so bad. Like this, this yeah. is, this feels, you know, this is okay. And I'm like, I'm building up the resiliency to do so. So right. with that, um, with that in mind, let's shift gears and talk about embracing the suck. So sure. why this concept and, and what does it really mean to you? Like, I mean, I, I kind of get the idea, but maybe just sure. break it down for the listener and, and how it sort of came about for you and why you feel it's so important. Sure. Uh, I'll start off by kind of explaining just for the, you know, the viewer listener, uh, what embrace the suck means. The term was born in the United States military, obviously been uh, very well adopted within the world of not just special operations training, but just the lifestyle uh, in general. Uh, people associate, you know, uh, the rigors and hardships of special operations with the training, but the, the, the job itself uh, is far more challenging as it relates to the day-to-day -day grind, the stress being gone 250 days a year, uh, having to navigate relationships, family, marriage, uh, it's, it's, it, it is the ultimate, uh, suck embracing, uh, in a way, but, but again, it, it's a call to serve and then the passion and connection to the job is what carries not just the operators, but their families and spouses through as well. So essentially the term just means the battlefield, and we can talk about literal or figurative battlefields. The battlefield's tough, accept it, lean into it and find a path forward. Uh, essentially being more intentional in the fine art of comfort zone expansion and having that ability to move more quickly from that bunker of normal human emotion when adversity strikes, the, the surprise, the anger, the depression, the rationalization, and finding a way to move more quickly into acceptance and uh, taking stock of your current situation, developing a plan of action despite the inevitable obstacles you have in front of you, and stepping back onto the battlefield of life and being able to do that over and over and over again in both your personal and professional life. And um, the, the book really, the inspiration for the book actually came from, uh, in large part, what we do you know, within my company, Taking Point Leadership. We're a, a leadership and organizational development consulting firm. We work with you know, medium to enterprise level organizations all over the world. And uh, my first book, Taking Point, was about organizational transformation, leading change in a business organization. And you can't lead change in an organization or create uh, more positive desired business outcomes unless you enhance the rituals, behaviors, values, and actions of the people in the organization. So I was like, well, maybe there's something here because we're really teaching a lot about personal transform more transformation as it relates to being in that continual state of improvement as a leader, as a manager of other people. Uh, the best leaders out there are lifelong learners uh, and they crave feedback. They're always trying to uh, enhance their ability in, in the craft of leadership. So I said, well, maybe there's an interesting project here associated with uh, in the self-help or self-improvement genre as it relates to books. I knew I had another book in me and 
I had never read a self-help book before. <laughs> so I, I went out there. I was like, well, maybe I should, should do some research and see what's out there. You know, what I like, what, what I don't really connect with. And obviously it's, it's arguably one of the most popular book genres out there. It's a multi-billion dollar industry when it comes to personal development, personal improvement, as you well know. And, you know, I found some great books, uh, great narratives, great storytelling, really creative, engaging. I didn't find a lot, though, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, of what, you know, our special operators are bringing to the civilian world now. I didn't find a lot that was actionable. And I didn't find hardly anything that was really more gritty, in your face, tough love, suck it up, get over it, and, you know, accept the inevitable pain, suffering, and adversity we all face in life. And uh, I found some great new books. I really like Mark Manson's approach with his book, Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Um, his second book, you know, uh, Everything is F'd a book about hope, <laughs> like really creative, funny, counterintuitive approach to the normal self-help fluff. And so I was kind of inspired by his work and then obviously trying to find a way to take a uh, sort of a special operator military spin on it. Um, and in the book, you'll see it's, again, not a war memoir. It's not a biography by any means. Uh, it's not designed not just to tell you know my stories. Uh, you know, I, My stories pale in comparison to, to many out there, but telling other people's stories, whether it's special operators or elite athletes or, you know, uh, historical figures uh, around how people uh, over time, uh, you know, have uh, been able to develop, you know, grit, resilience and mental fortitude. And what what can we potentially learn from that in, in having the ability to start to change the narrative in our minds about what true adversity really is? Now, I will say going into this project, I didn't realize that 2020 was going to suck so bad. So this had nothing to do with a global pandemic coming down the pipeline. It just selfishly, the timing is perfect. But in all seriousness, I'm not trying to you know, discount the loss of life and the loss of business and the hardships people have been through over the past 10 or 11 months. But at the same time, the timing is such that uh, it can be a tool of inspiration and motivation and of, and of taking action. Uh, and the, you know, it's only been out four weeks. We've got phenomenal reviews. It's been holding number one in self-help and success and self-esteem and happiness and things like that. And uh, that's the ultimate goal. You know, I want it to be a tool that people can really connect with, they can use, they read it multiple times, and there's actionable models in each chapter uh, that, that helps you take the, the principle of each chapter and actually do something with it, whether it's avoiding temptation or planning better, better execution, better debriefing with yourself so you can be in a constant state of improvement. Those mental models are there to provide the user something to actually take action on. Um, and so far, you know, it's, we've been very blessed. It's been, uh, it's been, uh, doing really well. It's had great feedback. So nice. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like as you went through, I kind of got a chuckle cause you were talking about like wanting to write the, the self-help book and not having read self-help books. And, <laughs> and I like got a flashback to starting this podcast and had never listened to podcasts before. So right. I, I totally understand that I'm on board with it. And I, and I love that because sometimes you just got to thrust yourself into the fire, right? You're like, I know I need to do this, or I know I'm feeling pulled or called to do this. And so, you know, pushing yourself into that, I think is important. I'm curious from your perspective, because I think there's a lot of garbage self-help out there, not to knock any of it specifically, but I'm curious as you went through that process and you started to read those books and see some of these, uh, you know, sort of frameworks that are being put out there. What would you say is, is one of the main challenges or issues that you see with the self-help industry and specifically some of the frameworks or, or like technologies that people put out? Just, I'm just curious. I, I think it goes back to what I was saying is that, that, you know, I, I ordered a you know, stack of a bunch of different types of books in the self-help you know, category. Now, but obviously now we have you know, podcasts associated with this. You have 
um, you know, all different types of, of avenues of, of content distribution and consumption when it comes to the, the self-improvement uh, genre. And a lot of it, again, just kind of goes back to things that aren't actionable. Most of the books I picked up, I read a few pages or flipped through and, you know, put them down. Uh, whereas there are a few that really sucked me in uh, that were great reads, but also had tools that you can use. Now, some were great reads and they didn't have tools, but they were still entertaining. And, um, and I did, you know, take things away from them. The, the type of content that I like to consume and that, you know, we try to push, you know, my company, for example, is, is very actionable. Uh, maybe that's the mm-hmm. military background. I don't know, but it, I, I, don't, I don't like to leave any ambiguity when it comes to the principle I'm trying to convey and then what the tool or, or framework uh, or mechanism is that someone can actually use to enhance their life. Um, so that, that's kind of what I've, I've found is, is um, you know, missing out there a little bit. And that's, that was the goal of, of the book is to create something that's, um, that connects with people, uh, but that also um, can be a really good tool to, to utilize uh, in, you know, whether it's enhancing your professional life, your career, your leadership ability, or just your personal life, your relationships, your ability to navigate challenges with your spouse and in marriage or being a parent. <laughs> it all kind of intimately connects, uh, probably now more than ever that we're, we're all working virtually, working from home. It's not work-life balance, it's work, work-life integration now. So a lot of those tools really apply um, just in life in general, I believe, probably now more than ever that we have, we're faced with, you know, the, the complexities of the global pandemic and civil, social, and political unrest and economic and financial uncertainty and it being an election year. And um, so <laughs> people will take, take away from it what they will. But um, yeah, those are some of the things that I think um, the, the self-help space could really use more of is, you know, more, more tools, more action. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I did a, I did an episode about like all the, like the, the worst self-help sayings that are out there, you know, like, <laughs> like if you believe it, you can achieve it or like leap in the net will appear and just like, just went to task on them. Cause I was like, this is ridiculous. Like this don't help people, you know, like these yeah. keep people stuck. Um, but anyway, I back, back to this idea of embracing your suck. You, you said it, you say in the book, emotional intelligence is crucial for effective leadership in any environment, possibly now more than ever. We are the architects of our own beliefs the decisions we make and the results those decisions deliver. I love this. I love this, <clears throat> this sentiment in the statement. And it left me wondering like, what is a SEAL's take on emotional intelligence? Like, how does that play into your work? Because I think when people are looking from the outside in, and I think when I, you know, having worked with men for a very long time, there's this perspective that we should over-index our rational intelligence, that logical linear thinking is, is somehow the, the savior to everything. And so can you just speak a little bit to the importance of emotional intelligence, how you define that, how you see that playing into leadership, um, specifically on a personal level, because we, you know, at Man Talks, we talk a lot about self-leadership. And I think that you really hit the nail on the head with this one. Yeah, it's, it's funny because you think emotional intelligence, Navy SEAL, those things don't seem to really mesh well, where in actuality, uh, and a lot of the research we've done, going back to what I was saying before, as far as candidates more likely to navigate our course or or just um, individuals in general who develop more quickly as leaders, they score higher uh, in, in emotional intelligence, in self-awareness, relationship management, uh, and, and just the general ability to exhibit empathy, for example, uh, as a leader. Uh, you think that that doesn't necessarily apply in a military context, but it absolutely does. Uh, the timing of your question is interesting and it's top of mind because we were just running uh, a training program with one of our uh, large global healthcare organizations, their senior leaders in Scotland this morning. 
And today's block was on emotional intelligence and empathy as it relates to leading and managing remote teams, for example. So when we talk about leadership, uh, these types of uh, aspects of uh, high performance when it comes to leading and managing teams and, and people, uh, the principles are pretty much the same. They've just been uh, they've been put more into the spotlight when it comes to engaging teams remotely. Uh, you know, when you think about this in a business context, uh, employee engagement and keeping people motivated and inspired is already a challenge. Most organizations, employee engagement, for example, use still usually around one third where the rest of the organization or team is actively or passively disengaged. That's not unusual. The data keeps coming back the same every year from the Deloitte's and other consulting groups around the world. And so our role as leaders, and again, whether you're talking about leadership in a business context, family context, in the military, uh, emotional intelligence is crucial for one, having enough self-awareness to understand how to continually improve yourself, uh, how your emotions, your actions, and your words uh, impact others in certain situations, and being able to take stock of how you're behaving and acting in a certain situation. And not just when the sun's shining and you know uh, every, everything's going great, but uh, when you're faced with adversity, like we've all been faced with over the past 10 months and the uncertainty of, of COVID. Nobody had COVID on their business contingency plan, I guarantee you. And, <laughs> and so you know, one of the things we were talking about today is the importance of empathy as it relates to uh, leadership, as it relates to connecting uh, with others. And, you know, we shared this model we call the empathy ladder. And there's there's five stages of the ladder. And, and you, it's it's really easy to think of in the context of how you interact with your, your spouse or in a relationship, too. Um, whereas, you know, tier one, the bottom tier, the lowest level of empathy, when, uh, you know, someone comes to you, let's say it's a direct report or it's your spouse or a teammate and they're struggling with something, they're clearly upset about it. The, the lowest level of empathy on that ladder will be being somewhat dismissive, being like, embrace the suck, get over it. There are times and places for the embrace the suck philosophy <laughs> when it comes to empathy. Oftentimes it lives, you know, outside of the context of um, your immediate level of empathy. Now, empathy doesn't have to live in every scenario. Sometimes there's not the, there's a time or place for it. You know, the second tier is problem solving. And we as men have a tendency to go right to number two, problem solve. You got a problem? Let's solve it. Let's get on it. Let's execute. And whereas as you go up the ladder, you gradually get to higher levels of, of empathy. Because, you know, what is the problem when we immediately, let's say in a leadership context or a relationship, when we immediately jump to problem solving, you know, what are we doing? Well, we're not really listening to the other person. We're not really letting them communicate their emotions or how they feel or what that certain situation uh, is doing or causing within their emotional realm. Uh, but if you take enough time to really listen, you know, uh, you know ask good questions, and really show true empathy that, you know, you, it's not always easy. Sometimes you really are in a place where you don't care. You want to solve the problem. We don't have time for this. But at the same time, uh, when you can go higher up that ladder and ask the question, say, I understand how this must make you feel because this happened. Uh, but then you want to, you can gradually get back to tier two when you start to move closer towards helping them solve that problem, if that's appropriate for the situation. Um, you know, but it's interesting because it seems oftentimes in a leadership context or a military context that, uh, emotional intelligence, empathy aren't important, but it's one of the most critical factors for being able to engage people, communicate with people, and motivate them behind a shared sense of purpose to achieve common goals. I love, I love that breakdown. I think one of the things that hit like a ton of bricks. You, you, you said some just awesome things in there, but the one thing that really stood out was like empathy is is not required in every situation, yeah. and I and I agree, and I think that we um, sometimes get stuck trying to be overly empathetic 
or not being empathetic at the wrong time. So can you just, <laughs> can you just, can you that speak to that? yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, oh. can you speak to that a little bit in, in, in terms of the importance of not only our own individual leadership, but our leadership in our relationship or at home or in the work environment? Like what are, what are some of the distinctions or like, what's the framework around that? And how would you sort of guide people in saying, like, here are some clear times where we you definitely need to execute with empathy. And yeah. here are some times where maybe you don't, you know, maybe that's yeah. time to just to face someone and say, embrace the suck, you know, like, and, and call them forward. Can you just iron right. that a little bit? Scenario one, a gunfight in Fallujah. <laughs> if I have a teammate coming to me saying, you know what, Brent, these guys are shooting at me and it's making me feel really upset. Well, I'm probably going to go from uh, <laughs> number one, embrace the suck, to number two, let's solve the problem. Let's move to communicate. Um, but in all seriousness, the you know I had a scenario literally uh, like this this morning with my wife. I had just you know with my team we had taught a whole block on emotional intelligence and empathy. And soon thereafter, uh, she had come to me and she was you know, upset about something. And you know, obviously, sometimes as you know as parents, we have different styles when it comes to uh, parenting and how we parent this child versus this child and they're different ages and they need different things. And, you know, we're, you always have to make that conscious effort to be aligned and, and show a, you know, a, an aligned front, but, you know, we're all human. We have different approaches and different styles. And, uh, and sometimes we just don't agree <laughs> when, when, I'll just, you know, when, when it comes to that. Um, and I was literally, I had all this fresh in my mind and, you know, she's explaining it to me and she literally stopped. She says, I know you're just not saying anything because you want me to just get it out. And, <laughs> and so you can move on and get back to work. I was like, no, that's not what I'm doing. And, but I was thinking about, it, I was like, you know, use the tools that you teach. I was thinking about this while she was talking, like, don't just try to problem solve. Don't just keep your mouth shut. But also, you know, when you're being asked by someone, whether it's your spouse or a teammate or a peer, you know, when they're literally saying, can you understand how that makes me feel? You have to try to actually understand <laughs> how that makes them feel. Uh, and, and at the very least, try and have that conversation, put yourself in that context, put yourself in their shoes. And, and But you have to be authentic about it for it to actually help you know, heal that situation or help you know, heal that person. And you know, in, you know, as humans, we're, we're meant to live in, uh, with social interactivity and relationship. We're, we're meant to suffer uh, you know, in relationship. That's one of the things that uh, COVID, for example, has caused a lot of challenges when it comes to mental health is the social isolation uh, and uh, you're not having social interactivity, whether it's in a work environment or just a peer-to-peer -peer environment. Uh, that's why mental health has become you know, a big topic as it relates to uh, this current environment. And you know, so always finding ways to navigate that. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's an important thing, but uh, emotional intelligence and empathy are, are not just something you innately have or you don't have. It's something we actively have to work on. It's, it's why you teach it in leadership development programs. It's why people write about it. It's why people talk about it. It's why there's podcasts about it, because it's a skill set that has to be continually developed. And it's going to be, you know, those types of usages of those tools are situational. You're not going to use the same tools in the same situation. Uh, and like you said, sometimes, you know, time or place isn't appropriate for certain levels of empathy. And, and as men, sometimes we think, well, I need to, you know, I'm being proactive in my ability to enhance my emotional intelligence and my empathy so I can lead better or have better relationships. And sometimes we overdo it. <laughs> and, 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 and then it becomes kind of, like I said, inauthentic. Um, so there's, there's a balance. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate what you're, what you're saying there in terms of like, we can train ourselves in empathy 
And I think that distinction of not just sort of like going through the motions of empathy, but actually being being in the in the felt experience of empathy. Yeah. And I think there's a there's an innate threat to that. I've found for myself in dealing with my wife, who's a marriage and family therapist, and like one of the best, uh, or the men. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, but I, I've I've realized for me that there's there's a threat, usually in in the sense that contextually we often find that when I find that when we are going to be empathetic for another, there's a threat that like, it's going to somehow make us vulnerable to their experience. You know, that it might, it might shift us. It might change us. It might cause us to think a little bit differently. And that's the point. But I think that often, yeah, it it can. And, uh, you know, I think oftentimes we are, we're aiming at victory. We're aiming at control. Sometimes we're aiming at re like, um, regaining our sense of power or authority in a situation. And I think what I hear you saying is that sometimes we as leaders have to risk um, the fear of losing those things for the connection of empathy, because those things aren't going to be threatened. They're actually, or diminished, they're actually going to be enhanced when we really have that empathy. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and to your point, it actually made me think of something a, a VA counselor told me one time when it comes to post-traumatic stress or things like that, or the things that you share with others, you know, uh, and you can actually give your spouse or significant other elements of post-traumatic stress just by sharing uh, experiences with them and with them being uh, empathetic to those experiences, they can actually start to exhibit certain uh, PTSD uh, symptoms uh, actually from that, because to your point, they start to have that desire to carry that load with you. Um, But at the same time, when it comes to in the leadership context, like you said, uh, we fear sometimes that, you know, we're lifting that veil, you know, too much too soon, or, or we're opening ourselves up for, uh, you know, greater levels of transparency. And most of the time, you're actually building trust, you're building more meaningful relationships, you're building uh, connections that you can't uh, really replicate without showing certain levels of empathy. So in most contexts of a team or, or a leadership environment, uh, you will enhance the performance of that team by being vulnerable uh, as a leader. Uh, it's not always about being a robot or you know, controlling your emotions, which of course uh, is appropriate in certain situations, but also having that balance of being able to control your emotions, stay focused on the mission, but at the same time, in the appropriate context, being empathetic and transparent and, and also accepting of, of feedback too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that distinction. There's one part of the book that I really that I really loved, um, which was one of the chapters called "Choose Wisely: What You Suffer For," and I've always held this belief that what we consciously choose to suffer for significantly enhances our life, uh, or if we're unconsciously choosing it, is going to diminish it significantly because we will be we we will just become a walking meat sack of resentment and anger and shame and, and all of these other pieces. And so uh, I was, I was hoping that you could expand on that one a little bit, because I, I think that it's, it's just one of, it's one of those lessons that I feel is so underrated that people can't hear enough of it. So can you unpack that one a little bit for us? Sure. I mean, in its simplest form, obviously the suffering we experience in life uh, will be suffering we choose and suffering we don't choose. You know, let's start with the suffering we don't choose. Obviously the inevitable pain and the obstacles we face personally, professionally, you know, the loss of loved ones or illness or financial strain, divorce, 
Uh, you know, just the general challenges of being a parent, for example. Uh, you know, there's there's a little bit of suffering uh, in in you know all walks of life, especially when it comes to uh, pursuing meaningful things. You know, if if it doesn't associate a little pain or suffering or stress or anxiety with it, then, then maybe it's not maybe it's not uh, worth pursuing uh, in, in a certain way. And uh, so those are the things that we you know. There's a, the elements of suffering that, that we that we don't choose. Now, again, there's suffering practices that I share in the book that um, help us navigate, um, you know, the, the inevitable suffering we face in life, uh, tools you can use, and also ways you can um, engage through the relationship, through mentorship, through, um, you know, acceptance, uh, and then also finding ways to, you know, apply, you know, lessons learned. I kind of break it down, too, if you look at various cultures, you know, in the world, in the West, Western cultures, we have a tendency to uh, avoid pain and suffering and pursue um, happiness and pleasure at all costs. Whereas in many Eastern cultures, historically, you see, they see that you know pain and suffering are not just acceptable but critical. You know to continue to navigate that meandering path towards enlightenment, and wisdom, and and ultimately, um, you know, more meaningful, purpose-driven life. Uh, you know, there's a happy medium uh, in there somewhere, uh, of course. But when it comes to, you know, the choosing wisely what you suffer for, it's about being intentional in the paths you choose based on your core values, based on the goals you set, based on, you know, what we want to get out of this short life, what mark we want to leave on the world. And then once you have a, a direction and a purpose, then, you know, developing a plan of action to achieve those goals and understanding and labeling the obstacles that you'll face. There's it kind of associates a little bit with the chapter that you know titled "Do Something That Sucks Every Day." Once you have that plan, once you've labeled the obstacles, the threats, and blockages that stand in your way, and the, you know the anxiety or the stress or the things that you're not that good at that you'll have to overcome anyway if you want to achieve that goal, um, it'll make you un uncomfortable. And you know, like we say in the SEAL teams, well, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Be intentional in expanding your comfort zone. Identify the things that that make you cringe, or the, that are the challenges that you face, or the suffering you know that will be inevitable, and accept it. Develop a plan of action, and once it strikes, be able to course correct as needed. Um, so there's that difference between the suffering we choose, the suffering we don't choose. Uh, but we have a pretty significant say in how our lives unfold when it comes to how we react in the face of adversity. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to say it that way. Obviously it's not that simple. There are certain things that we'll never embrace like the loss of a loved one or a child or a spouse or a teammate. But at the same time, uh, there are ways to, uh, to accept and to extract what we can from those experiences and use those to uh, move forward with a new perspective, uh, maybe a little bit of uh, wisdom and enlightenment so that we can gradually uh, develop greater levels of mental fortitude and, and continue to just bounce back quicker um, as, as we as we navigate life's inevitable obstacles. Yeah, well, well said, well said. I'm I'm curious. You know, I think all of this is sort of a culmination of having individuals that are, in some ways, very self-led. That there's that there's a high level of self-accountability, self-ownership, self-leadership. And from what I understand about the the seals, having worked with a few of them myself and, and been um, in, in a fortunate enough position to do so, from what I have heard and understood, there comes a point when a seal unit starts to connect with their like their own individual leadership, starts to connect with the group, and they're able to move together in a sort of like felt sense, like an intuitional sense. Yeah. Do I, do I have that right? Or like, how would you Absolutely. describe that process? Absolutely. And it's, it's, 
you can sort of see that transformation even in the early stages of training. And then you really see it on the literal battlefield. Um, you don't even know how well that's going to come together until you are in combat scenarios with that team. The special operations community is designed to be somewhat of a flat organization. We're military, we have ranks, things like that. But at the same time, uh, we're very agile, nimble, networked, more of an ecosystem than a traditional command and control organization. So it's it, it's a bit um, it's a bit different than what people might from the outside of the military world might think of in the context of command and control, hierarchy, orders given down, orders executed. Whereas in an agile uh, world of special operations on the battlefield and in training, the idea is that every single person on the team leads. Everyone leads no matter what in, in, in the various contexts. Everyone has the ability to make autonomous decisions in certain situations. We don't have the time or the ability to, uh, to wait for your platoon commander, or the, your ground force commander to tell you exactly what to do. You know, you're moving at the speed of war. People need to execute and adapt uh, very, very quickly. Obviously, that doesn't happen overnight. That's years and years of training and rehearsals and dirt diving and lessons learned and creating that learning culture that we have so that we can adapt more quickly. And when you're working in a small team environment, uh, such as you know, special operations, whether you're in Fallujah, you're underwater in the pitch black, you get to know each individual, you know what kind of decisions they're going to make in certain situations, uh, and it really creates a very dynamic um, organizational environment uh, so that we can you know, be more nimble and agile. It's like our enemy. Our enemy is very networked. Their ecosystems, you say it's organized, but I say networked and ecosystemed, and they're intentional in that, and you can't fight that type of enemy uh, with a, you know, a traditional hierarchical organization. Um, so it, it, it's really fascinating, even, even back in early stages of BUDS, say Hell Week, for example, you do everything in those early weeks in boat crews. So seven person teams, one boat crew leader, which is the officer, six enlisted students. And during Hell Week, much of what you do is actually in competition with the other crews. And uh, some crews, you know, come together with that leadership at all levels philosophy. They're collaborative. Uh, they work cross-functionally. They accept transparent feedback. They're on a constant state of improvement. They adapt. Each person on the team looks out more for the person to their left and right and they do themselves, which creates that overlapping web of performance. And those crews, of course, as you can imagine, consistently win in these races and competitions. Now, other crews, or the majority of other crews, don't develop that uh, leadership philosophy uh, where everyone's leading. They don't work cross-functionally. They work in silos. They don't communicate. They don't collaborate. Everybody's looking out for this guy as opposed to the person to the left and right. And as you can imagine, when you think about the attributes of high-performing teams, that type of element is the opposite of those attributes. And of course, they lose consistently. So sometimes the instructors would perform these interesting sort of leadership or cultural experiments, and they would take the boat crew leader from the crew that's winning the majority of the races and swap them out with the boat crew leader that's losing the majority of the races. So they take the leaders, swap crews, and then they would see what happens. And what happens is actually pretty fascinating and has been relatively consistent across many classes where the, the crew that's losing the majority of the races under Basically, new inspirational leadership, a leader who knows how to quickly transform the culture, which is not easy to do, to reignite the individual's emotional connection and passion for the vision of what they're trying to accomplish, which is finish Hell Week and move on with the rest of training. And, you know, reignite that flame and that passion and get them working together, uh, help them understand that we're not going to win individually, we're going to win as a team. Otherwise, more pain and suffering will be coming for us. Uh, because if you're losing, uh, you're, you're getting extra attention from the instructors. That alone should be a powerful tool <laughs> for shifting towards a winning team mindset. 
Now, the crew that was winning all the races under new seemingly poor leadership, well, what happens to them? They continue to win the majority of the races because they'd already built such a cohesive winning team culture, the rituals, behaviors, and actions necessary for them to achieve their desired outcome, that not one individual, not one external or internal factor could dismantle what they created. So it's actually an interesting experiment when it comes to the philosophy of a team and how the individuals of a team contribute to uh, you know the desired outcome of what they're trying to accomplish that's fascinating I, I love i love the example thank you so much for sharing that and i think it really speaks to um just just the power of individuals sort of claiming and working on that level of self-leadership and then bringing that sovereignty to the group and yeah. and then bringing that when we bring that as a collective, there there creates a, a sort of cohesion that is very potent, you know, very challenging to sort of break. Uh, so I, I like that that visual example. And I, I kind of wanted to, um, we're going to have to wrap up here in just a minute, but um, I did have a question about, you know, where does the embrace the suck, where does the embrace the suck sort of end and things like uh, grief come in, and you know where is the time for for people to distinguish like this is something I need to push through, and this is something that I need to face and embrace, versus this is something that I need to like really actually grieve. And what does that look like for seals? Because I've again I'm thinking about a few individuals that I've worked with, and I, I remember working with one individual. And I led him through a couple experiences about being able to grieve some of the stuff that he had gone through, not only in battle, but previous to that in his, in his childhood and then in his relationship. Yeah. And when, when we were finished the exercises, he said, I shit you not, I would rather rush a machine gun nest than go through what you just brought me through because that's so, <laughs> so yeah. bloody confronting, you know, and it's, yeah. it's very challenging. Um, I think for any anyone to really allow themselves to grieve, and so what, what does that look like for you, and and where does that where is that line? The, yeah, the the embrace the suck philosophy, while seemingly wrapped sort of in a macho, uh, you know, hard edged uh, approach to just life in general, uh, to really embrace the suck and really to you know live a meaningful, purpose driven life for you. Uh, meet and exceed more of the goals you set, you overcome obstacles uh, in a healthy manner and deal with you know pain and suffering in a responsible way, uh, it requires really good suffering practices and the ability to grieve, uh, not shove it down into a box. You know, we men sometimes are really good at compartmentalizing. Now there's sort of, there's healthy compartmentalization and there's unhealthy compartmentalization. And, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with uh, therapists and counselors too, because I think it's the responsible thing to do, whether you've been in combat or not. I, I think that I really believe in therapy. I believe in counseling, whether it's individual or with your spouse. Uh, it's always good to not just have an outside perspective, but you know, have an expert help you navigate uh, grief uh, in, in a way that will uh, help you heal uh, properly. Uh, not swallow it down and get over it as quickly as possible, but go through those stages of grief. And, you know, anybody, for example, who's been in combat will probably have some element of post-traumatic stress. In special operations, all of us have lost countless uh, teammates. Uh, you know, I, I went in right before 9-11. Our class leader, the highest ranking officer in our BUDS class, died during Hell Week. And the commanding officer, two hours after he you know, was pronounced dead, he was talking to the class, he said, he basically said, get used to this feeling you're having right now. This is not going to be the last teammate you lose. And you know, you better accept that now. And then he walked out of the room. 
Uh, not very empathetic, <laughs> but, but it was real. And if this were a movie or a book, you would call that foreshadowing because five months later was 9-11. And that's when you know, the whole environment of the world really changed. And that's when military and special operators went from peacetime operators to wartime operators, essentially overnight, literally overnight. And what's been interesting to see, though, is that we've been working really hard and individuals uh, and the organizations within the military special operations have been working very hard to change the culture and the mindset around grief and the mindset around the acceptance of, of PTSD and the extreme suffering that our operators go through, not just from different experiences, but from the physical elements of TBI, of traumatic brain injury. Uh, you know, if you're doing an explosive breach every single night on the target and you're standing 10 feet away from a one to two pound block of C4, you're going to have micro concussions, just like NFL players smacking helmets, you know, every night in games and things like that those physical uh, damages to your body have emotional, uh, obviously, repercussions. Um, the suicide rate, for example, right now, we're losing 20 to 22 veterans a day to suicide. I mean, it's, it's mind-numbing to even think about. It's hard to even wrap your head around you know, the, the concept of what that really is. And uh, so it's been at least positive to see that we're shifting the culture and seeing operators come out now and they're being open on social media uh, about their suffering. They're being open on social media about their grief and, and what they're doing about it. There's more foundations that help with it. People are talking about it, which is, it's really awesome because uh, we, we've put away finally that old school tough guy mentality of swallow it down, that's combat, you're a warrior. Well, that doesn't work. You know, we have to be, and, and again, going back to the philosophy, embrace the suck, it's not meant to be macho. It's meant to actually use tools to grieve, properly, you know, engage in proper suffering practices so that you can heal, you can become stronger, but also just be a responsible human. Uh, it's irresponsible for us, in my opinion, not to seek help, not to seek counseling or, you know, uh, or, uh, or medical care that we need uh, to be able to, to grieve, whether you're talking about, you know, a, a combat veteran or just uh, any of us who have uh, to deal with any type of, of grief in life. It's, it's better to be proactive lean into it and go get the help you need. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, I, I really, I really appreciate that. And um, I definitely felt that through your book and through the content that you put out and I could, uh, I just, you know, I wanted to give you a chance to use your own words to, to say it because it's just, you know, I, I feel like it's necessary, it's needed. And, um, and I love that the, the content of the book emphasizes that you know it talks yeah. about empathy it talks about these components it's not just sort of like a suck it up and move through it mentality <laughs> it's like yeah embrace the shit you know embrace the suck it's it's going to be hard and leave room for these things that are absolutely ne necessary for your growth for your expansion so listen for for everybody that's out there that wants to go you know has listened to this conversation is like i gotta go listen to this book i gotta go buy this book uh where can they find it i know it's on audible um but where where would you like people to go sure uh, obviously it's on audible it's on uh, amazon and all online retailers it's in you know the, the brick and mortar bookstores as well and probably some local bookstores around the united states so uh it, it's easily accessible um you can find uh, navigate there too through our company website which is takingpointleadership.com uh, and through my social media platforms professionally i'm on linkedin i'm also on instagram at brent underscore gleason and on twitter as well 
Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming back or coming on the show. Um, I was going to say, I would love to have you back on if you, you know, produce another, another book or just to have another conversation about something because this was awesome and, um, and profound and I love your insights. So uh, thanks for everything that you do. And for everyone that's out there listening, definitely go check out Brent's work. We'll have the links to the book and to uh, Brent in the show notes. Don't forget to share this episode, man it forward and share it with somebody that you know will enjoy it. Until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.